Welcome to the Lifehouse Podcast. Our aim is that together we can love God, love others as we walk each step with Christ. We hope you find this message practical, encouraging and life-giving. Be blessed. Very good, yes. It's good to be back. It was great to watch online last week. And uh, we were at the beach, uh, which is great. Uh, We love the beach. And uh, even on our day off, you know, we quite often end up at the beach because we just love being there. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were there at the, at the beach, uh, down sort of near, near sort of between Victor and Port Elliot and the different things there. And uh, we took our dogs because our dogs also love the beach. And uh, the reason that they love the beach is because they, they kind of love water, but they... They'll only go in water where they can see the bottom and touch the bottom. So that kind of means that they don't really go in our swimming pool uh, because they can't touch the bottom, that they don't really uh, go into the river uh, because they can't see the bottom. Uh, but when it comes to the beach, they quite often love being there. So we've taken them to the beach. Uh, we were down in this little cove that was nice and isolated so they could be off the lead. And they were having a great time. And then uh, Charlie uh, found that a, a child had left uh, its toy on the beach. So they were there, both there playing on the sand. And then Charlie found this toy. And so then he grabs it and he starts playing with it. And uh, parents in the room will know that if one sibling finds a toy and starts playing with it, the other one has to have it at that time, don't they? So Lola came up and she wanted the toy. So to keep it away from her, even though he doesn't ever like to go beyond where he can touch, Charlie went out into the ocean beyond where he could touch to keep it away from Lola and keep it safe. And uh, in that moment, it was like God was speaking to me. So, you know, God speaks through his word, of course. He speaks through worship. He speaks through prophetic words like we heard uh, the other week. But he also speaks to me through just normal everyday, you know, occurrences that happen just like that. And so it was like God asked me a question in that moment. He kind of said, what would you be willing to go beyond the shore for? If you could have one thing, if you could just take one thing beyond the shore, what would you take? And it was like I had this picture that God, His His love, His grace, His His mercy is there's there's no there's no limit to it. There's no it's it's in a place where we can't touch the bottom. It's so deep, His love for us. And going out beyond the deep, you know, beyond the, the, the edge of the shore, it can be a bit of a, a scary place. But there's things that God actually wants to do beyond the comfort of the shore. And that's the only place where the enemy, in this case Lola, can't come and steal, kill and destroy. That's the one place where the enemy won't follow is into the depths of God's love. And so he asked me that question, what would you, what would be the one thing? And, you know, I was looking for some deep, profound answer, but the only thing that I knew how to answer was just, well, my salvation, eternity with you. 
I thought I needed to be smarter than that. I thought it needed to be clever, but it was as simple as that. That God actually wants us to know that while we can get caught up with paying mortgages and sporting events and church events and the approval of people and a million and one different things that might try to occupy our brain space, all of the urgent but unimportant things, they kind of fade away in the light of eternity. That it's, it's really our salvation and the promise of heaven that should be the only thing that we're willing to go beyond the shore for. So in this Beyond series, we've been talking about asking beyond, thinking beyond, seeing beyond, hearing beyond, dreaming beyond, all of that in line with our key verse from Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to carry out his purpose and do super abundantly more than all we could dare to ask or think infinite beyond, beyond our greatest prayers, hopes and dreams according to his power at work within us. So I thought that with all those amazing uh, speakers that we've had bringing those different aspects, that that was going to be it, that that was going to be all of it. That was my plan. But then I felt God say to me, just do one more called Grasping Beyond. And I thought, Grasping Beyond, that doesn't make any sense, God, because if if something is beyond you, it means that you can't grasp it. You can't lay hold of it. So how is that going to work? How can we grasp what is beyond us, what is beyond our reach, what is beyond the shore? How can we ever grasp that? But then theologians talk about this idea of the now but not yet idea of the kingdom. That it is beyond our grasp, but we are actually able and we're actually called to grasp it. We're called to grasp eternity. That we're told in the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew 6.10 that we are to pray that your kingdom come, that what you want will be done here on earth the same as it is in heaven. Meaning that currently that's not the case everywhere for everybody that they're not seeing the kingdom come, but that we can pray for it. That it is possible to grasp the kingdom right here, right now. If God asks us to pray in that way, if, if this was one of the most important prayers that we're told, Jesus wouldn't tell us to pray for something that we can't do, that he can't achieve. So it is possible to grasp this not yet, but coming kingdom. And the role of prayer and our role as Christ followers is to bring that not yet kingdom of heaven to the now reality of a broken, hurting, disobedient world. To grasp hold of that unimaginable thing and make it graspable for our loved ones. Because if you can only take one thing out into the deep, 
then let it be eternity with your Savior. See, I never really understood what Paul meant when he said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9, he said, if what we have hoped for in Christ doesn't take us beyond this life, then we are world-class fools, deserving of everybody's pity. And while we think, oh yeah, that, that's true, because if we're wrong, we're, we're wrong. But then I think about all the different things that His Word gives me, even taking heaven out of the picture, I think, well, you know, God, if I follow, if I have hope in, in God's promises, you know, that they're true and that they're good for me and, you know, I don't swear, I don't use bad language, I don't talk badly about other people, then people are more likely to listen to me. So that's better off for me. If I give 10% of my income away, then I'm not consumed by consumption and I'm more concerned about giving than, than getting. And so that's still good for me here and now. That everything that's in God's Word is actually good for me here and, and now. If I'm not addicted to self-harm and anger and alcohol and pornography and the approval of others, my life is better because rather than going on that downward spiral, there is uplifting freedom that comes in and through God. So everything God asked me to do in His Word makes my life better. So why would Paul say that I'm a world-class fool deserving of pity? And it's because I'm swimming away from the shore with this one thing that the world says doesn't exist. I'm swinging away from the shore. I'm basing all my decisions that every decision that I make should actually be based in the light, in the weight of eternity. So we're not pitied because of every single decision that we make. But they pity us because they think we think that every decision should be made in the light of eternity, that it should outweigh everything else in life. That there are times when, in fact, we are called to give up what I want now for what matters most. But how do I know I'm going to get that most in the end? I mean, if heaven and hell are real but can't be grasped, that if they are beyond imagination, as our key verse says, then how are we supposed to make every decision assuming that they're true? Don't we need some assurance of this beyond lifestyle? We can look to movies that talk about life beyond. Many of you may have seen you know, Field of Dreams or Ghost or Soul, the new movie that's uh, just recently come out. 
Many of you may have gone down to Kurong and bought a whole bunch of books of people claiming that they have been either to heaven or to hell. And some of the things depicted in those stories might be true, but others are just downright false. So how do we know? How do we discern? If only there was someone that had been to both heaven and hell that could enlighten us. If only there was someone that could have gone there and then tell us what it is like so that then we have an assurance of this beyond hope that we can actually grasp hold of. And of course, in Jesus, we have just that. So today we're going to look at two different parables. One is a uh, parable that Jesus gave us, and the other is uh, the, the story of a, a guy called Chester O'Dell. And we're going to read an excerpt from his uh, journal written back in 1915. So this first entry is dated the 17th of September. He says, I'm writing by moonlight, so this first journal entry will be brief, so as not to risk getting caught. I will surely be punished if they find this book, they being the Germans that have captured me. I hope it won't cause the death of me. I am desperately miserable. I don't see any way out of it. I'm alone in this putrid heap of bodies, cramped and soiled. It has been a stifling day, and now I am pressed shoulder to shoulder against the British soldiers like me. I stare up at the stars and wonder if my beautiful Evelyn is looking down on me. A German guard is drawing near, so I must go. 19th of September. They expect us to work, but how can we when they don't feed us? My dearest Evelyn would never allow me to go hungry. She had this or that always cooking on the stovetop. She was my provider. She would have been the best mother. But I failed her and our unborn child. What a despicable person I am. How can I ever be forgiven? How can you be sure she's dead, you may ask? I'll recount the story from the beginning. I brought my pregnant wife here from Great Britain. For we had relatives in France with whom we could stay with. I wanted to visit her, so I snuck away from the Western Front since she was nearby. I came to the house where I had left her, and it was completely a shambles. There were bloodstains on the floor. The kitchen utensils spewed recklessly as if thrown in self-defense. When I called, there was no answer. Suddenly, I was snatched from behind and slammed to the ground. I didn't even struggle. I knew I'd been caught. The rotten soldier spat. It's useless looking. They're all gone. I couldn't believe him. I didn't believe him until I saw it. I saw her beautiful maroon shawl in a pile of deceased bodies being loaded into the truck. The filthy maggots wouldn't even let me bury her. So I was taken off to camp and have been slaving for the enemy. 
I haven't bothered attempting to escape because what's the point? I'll only be further punished. I'm alone. Nobody knows who I am and nobody is waiting for me to come home. 3rd of November. I've not written in over a month for there is nothing to report. I've gone about the monotonous activities without a thought of what, is, what I was really doing. Life just does not seem worth living. For whom could I be without my precious Evelyn by my side? If I could not protect her, how could I protect and fight for my country or myself? 4th of November. I will directly pen the letter that she wrote to me. So I will have a second copy if the first gets misplaced. To my dearest Chester, please don't worry about me or our baby, for he and I are healthy and fine. Yes, you are officially a father. I have named him Chet, for he is much like his dad. And I thought directly naming him Chester would be confusing. I hope you approve. I also hope you are okay. I don't know if you are alive or not, or with the British Army anymore. I have heard, but if you get this letter, please respond right away. I am in hiding with the, with the Lenores, and we are very safe, so do not worry. I packed little possessions, and we left in such a hurry. If you visit our home now, you may find that another family is living there. For a woman asked me to stay there for a while when we were gone. And how could I turn down a desperate mother? I can't wait to see you when this is all over. All my love, Evelyn and baby Chet. Isn't this so delightful? I so rapidly wrote a reply to her and passed it to the same gentleman who had delivered it to me. I must go now for it is meal time and I must not miss that. Not because I love it, but because I love them. 15th of November. This place is horrible. But every day I arise with the thankfulness for I am still alive and so is my family. I am holding on to the hope that I will see them soon. I can just imagine holding them in my arms, my precious son and lovely wife. They are worth living for. So we can understand this idea, this principle that then affects now. When we hear those words, they ring true to us. The hopelessness, the despair when the, the idea of then is taken away, the idea of reuniting, the idea of, of family, the idea that is out there is taken away. But then all of a sudden, when the same things, the same food, the same regiment is, is asked of him, all of a sudden, everything changes in his life. Because then affects now. So, I don't know whether to disappoint you or not, but that was not actually a true story. 
that Shana wrote that. To illustrate that point, it is a modern-day parable, but because of the truth that we can understand from that, it rings true to us. That somehow, when we hear it in story form, we seem to be able to grasp the fact that then does affect now. But yet, somehow, we still go through life making decisions and doing things solely based on now and forgetting the then. I have here a, uh, a balance weight. So you can see that there's two sides to this and depending on what you put in and take out will depend on how balanced things are. And so many of us get hung up on the idea of balance. We want to have a healthy work-life balance. So we, we're asked to do something extra at work, but we need to make sure that we're in balance with what is taking place at, at home. And so we make sure that, that everything is in balance. We spend our whole lives trying to maintain this idea of, of balance. But then COVID hit. And took away all these things that we were no longer allowed to do. And all of a sudden, our life was back out of balance again. And so all of a sudden, we had to remove more things. And so we went into this kind of, because we felt like we we're going into this downward spiral, we had to change things. And now that COVID is kind of coming to an end, we, we kind of, there's this whole talk about this idea of the new normal. And as we're starting to put stuff back, we want to be careful about what we're putting back in. And this idea of the new normal, I won't put that back in, but maybe I'll put this in, but I have to make sure that I maintain the balance. And so there's this new normal with things that are left out because we spend our whole lives trying to maintain this idea of balance. And every decision that we make, we base on this idea of balance. But I want to tell you, I am unbalanced. That every decision that I make is unbalanced. And some of you are thinking, yeah, we kind of knew that, Josh. But here's the thing. This idea of, of balance, of yin and yang and, and all this stuff was never a Christian concept. Because if we spend our whole lives trying to just maintain balance and make decisions based on balance, we will actually end up saying no to good things and yes to bad things. And you might think, no, no, that would never happen. I wouldn't do that. I know when a good thing... But we kind of go, oh, I've kind of... I've had a busy week at work and that's outweighing things. So, should I go to church or should I have some family time? Maybe I'll say... 
no to church to keep the balance in my life. So we say no to a good thing. Or what about this one? Oh, you know, I kind of, the other day, I did something really good. I went for a 3K walk. Went for a walk along the beach with my wife. That was great. So now because I did a good thing, that means I get to eat a block of chocolate. Don't we? Don't we do that? Don't we say, well, I've done a good thing. I deserve a reward. I need to, I've done a good thing. So even though I know that it's bad, I'll choose a bad thing because of balance. And we actually, we will actually say no to good things and yes to bad things based on balance. Based on a lie that we have been told that your life should be in balance. But what the Bible is actually saying to us is there should be something that we place in our life that should be so weighty, that should be so heavy, that not COVID, that not temptation, that not opportunity, nothing, no matter what goes in and out of this side, no matter if COVID hits, that that my life isn't swayed, that my life isn't turned, that I'm not up and down, that I'm not just spending my whole life trying to maintain this idea of balance. That every decision that I make should be slanted towards eternity. That if we put eternity in that side, it should be so weighty. So that all of a sudden, when we're deciding, should we go to, to church or not? Should I have some family time or not? We're kind of going, well, what am I leading my family to with my family time if I take away the weight of eternity from their lives? Or should I date this guy or not? I mean, he's nice, he's not a Christian. But he's kind of nice, can't I? But if we're making every decision based on the light of eternity, yeah, he's hot, but hell is hotter. And it goes on a lot longer than whatever relationship you're going to have. Every decision that we make should be based in the weight of eternity. That we need to grasp this, that this needs to hold the absolute weight in our lives, in everything that we do. And I know that some of you are going, Josh, I thought you were a scientist. This is the 21st century. Don't tell me that you actually believe that hell is a place, that hell is hot, that, that, that you know, that hell has you know, more people in it than just, you know, Pol Pot, Osama Bin Laden, Hitler, and apparently Dr. Seuss at the moment. Well, again, let's, let's go this time not to the words of Shana, but to the words of Jesus with this parable that he gives us in Luke 16. Because he speaks directly to this. He says, 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the cool water in the water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. There is so much in this passage that gives us an accurate picture of what heaven and hell is like, that you may not find in books, that you may not find in movies, but you are going to find from the person that has been to both. So we're going to go through some of these truths about heaven and hell. So if we can have the first one up. Thank you, A-Train. That's great. Okay, so in the passage, we read that it is hot and oppressive in hell, that that is a reality. But heaven is full of blessing and abundance, that Lazarus could walk over and get whatever water he wanted any time. The next one. There is no crossing over. There is no time delay and there is no going back. Some people think there's this idea of, you know, purgatory or, you know, lots of different things that come up. But, of course, this guy's five brothers are still alive. There wasn't any time gap between him going there, like between him passing away and him being in that place of torment. There is no crossing over. It said very clearly there's a chasm. There is no way once you're in either place, you are there. There is no going back. But the same is true for heaven. Once you are safe inside, you are there. And 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Next one. This is a bit of a tough one. Most people go there. 
it says that that is the broad way and many are those that go down it. Those are the words of Jesus. And heaven, fewer people go there. That that is the narrow way that fewer people go down. We need to stop living in this idea that it doesn't matter what I do here on earth, that most people, as long as I'm not Hitler, as long as I'm not killing a whole bunch of people, that everyone just goes there. This is not the truth of God's Word. If we're going to grasp hold of eternity, we need to grasp hold of the facts that God has for us that He has placed in His Word. Next one. People are not having a good time. I don't know if you've heard people say this, that they say, well, if, if all my friends are there, if the people, you know, if you are true, Josh, that most people go there, then that's where I want to go. No, you do not. I mean, I kind of get on all right with my brothers as far as things go. But you know what siblings are like. Like if, you know, if, if one sibling gets something slightly better than you, then you're jealous and you want to, you know, to even things up or have something slightly better than them. But to this guy in this experience in hell, he didn't just want to say, let my other brothers come, at least then I'll have company. No, he knew that this was really bad, that people do not, you don't get to have a party there, that it is not, it is not a great place to be, that you need to do anything. And he is saying, I would do anything to avoid my family coming there. But heaven, I didn't see anywhere in that passage talking about clouds or babies playing harps. It is not boring, because I know that for some of you, that idea of heaven would be boring. But it's interesting, isn't it, that it talks about this idea of Abraham, that Abraham is the one that this father figure called Father Abraham is having this conversation. Because the Jews had this concept that in the afterlife, it was a big party, it was a big celebration, and that Abraham was the master of ceremonies. He's the, he's the DJ, he's the one spinning the beats, he's the one bringing out the food. And so it's supposed to be a party, a celebration. It's supposed to be this amazing time. All right, next one. Information won't save them. He says just... Just go back and give them the information. Information doesn't save people. All I can do up here is give you information. I can't save you. This is not my job. I want to give you true and accurate information. But there's someone else that's in the room whose voice you should be listening to a lot louder than mine... And that's the voice of the Holy Spirit because He brings transformation which brings eternal life. So we're not just looking for, info, for information because we're told in that passage that information will not save them. That even if someone rise from the dead, it said it still wouldn't save them. That that information, even seeing it with their own eyes, it wouldn't change them. 
Here's an interesting one. Next one. Repentance cannot keep us out and performance cannot get us into heaven. Because he said that, you know, that they need to repent, that his brothers need to repent. But the Bible also says that there is a repentance that leads to death and a repentance that leads to life. That there are people that are repenting all the time, that there are people that get caught stealing, there are people that get caught committing adultery, there are people that get caught for all sorts of different things and they're repentant for the consequences. But repentance, while it is a huge key, while it is something that we need to to do, repentance cannot keep you out of hell. And performance doesn't get you in. He, no doubt, this rich man, I'm sure he would have gone to temple. He would have done everything right. He was a, a Jewish person. He would have done all the different things. But his performance and his standing did not guarantee him a place in to heaven. Next one. Satan is not in control of hell. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I have the keys to death and Hades. That when he went into hell, that he came back, he had, he now has the key to death and Hades. So Satan is not in control. He likes to tell you he's in control, doesn't he? He always likes to, you know, say how much control and how much power he actually has. But he is not in control of heaven, but, uh, sorry, of hell, but God is in control of heaven. And this is a key verse. If you're taking notes, write this down because this is, the, this is the difference. Either God says to us, thy will be done to us, or we say to God, thy will be done. God will come to the point, because we kind of have this picture, don't we, of, you know, pitchforks and this deep pit and everyone's just like in this deep pit in hell and they're just clambering over each other trying to kind of get out. And it's hot and there's fire and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But that's not the picture that this gives. It's because, you see, even in hell, did you notice that this rich guy still wants to boss Lazarus around? He still thinks that Lazarus is there to serve him. Because selfishness and self-centeredness and doing things our way for eternity is what hell is. Alone, isolated, full of pride. So either God will say to us, thy will be done. You're on your own. You want to be in control? You want to take, you want to take charge? This is the end of that road. Or we say to God, thy will be done, your will be done, God. You are in control. 
I surrender my life to you. Two to go. You doing all right? Okay, second to last one. Removal of hell does not make God more loving. And speaking more about hell does not get people into heaven. Oh, this is a big one. I could preach another 45 minutes just on that one. But let me, I guess, try to explain it in a way because there's generally two types of people in a room like this. There's a whole bunch of people that never want to talk about hell. There's people here that brought their friend for the first time and they're just like, really, Josh, you hardly ever preach on hell now my friend is here. What are you doing? I can't understand. We just never want to talk about that. And then there's other people that just like, yes, we need to talk more about hell. We need to talk more about pre-millennial, post-millennial, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation. We need to work out exactly what it is. The more that we preach about it, the more that people are going to be fearful of it and the more that people are going to get saved. But an interesting thing, God is a God of love. And even to this guy in hell, if we assume that Father Abraham is Father God, he still talks to him lovingly. He calls him my child, my son. Because sometimes we think that God is the one there sort of poking those people down that are trying to climb out of hell with a stick. We kind of think, oh yeah, he seems all loving kind of on the surface. But when it comes time to it, He's really just a God of judgment. But this passage, he's got no reason to speak nicely to this guy. He's got no reason to call his, him son. The, he's, he's telling him the deal is done. But he still has love and care and concern for him because God is a God of love. Now, as I said, this week I've been away. And let's say that Holly came to me like when I got back yesterday and she said, Josh, I've got all your mail, I've got all your bills and uh, I want you to know that I paid one of your bills. Now, this week I had to pay one bill that was a dollar and ten cents. And I also just recently bought two investment properties worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. The way that I interact with Holly about that question is determined by which bill she paid, don't you think? She told me that she paid one of the bills. What if she paid the dollar the ten one? I'd probably say, thanks. Great. Thank, thanks so much. If she paid off the two massive mortgages that I now have, my response to her is going to be different, isn't it? And her demonstration of love towards me is different. And so all of a sudden, 
my, my gratitude and my thankfulness to her just goes up astronomically, doesn't it? Jesus went to hell for you. He paid the bill that you could never pay. He, he paid so much more than, than just a couple of hundred thousand dollars. He paid with his blood. The presence of hell does not make God less loving. It makes him more loving. And us understanding that, us grasping a hold of what hell is and what you have been saved from should then in turn make us so much more grateful to a loving heavenly Father who would do anything, who would shed his blood, who would go to the pit of hell for you. And finally, if the band can come up, There is no names, no purpose, and no hope. But in this one, God calls us by name. He calls us to worship when we're given love, acceptance, and affirmation. Interesting thing about this parable. It's kind of a bit like that first parable that we read out, that with the the photo there and the name, it kind of made it more real, didn't it? And in this parable, unlike any other parable, someone is given a name. But it wouldn't be the person that we would ordinarily think in life. Because in life, the important people get names, don't they? In life, you know, when someone important enters a room, maybe you've been to official functions and they might have politicians sitting there and they make sure that they go through and they mention everybody by name and the mayor is here and this person and that person and everyone that's important gets their name said when they come into a room. And I'm sure the same would have taken place back then for these two people that this rich guy probably had some kind of name like Sir Darius Mahogany III. And every time that he would go into a room, because he was a rich man, I'm sure that they made sure that they mentioned his name, that he is here. But Lazarus, I'm sure that his name was never mentioned, that he was probably just called the beggar that sat by the gate. Unimportant that when he entered a room, people wanted to deny his presence. But yet in heaven, all of that and hell, all of that was switched around, wasn't it? All of a sudden, it's the rich man that just gets given this title. Because when he swam away from the shore, all that he took with him was his riches. So that was his name. That was his title. His name was not important anymore because all the riches in the world could not buy him one drop of water in hell. Because none of that matters once you swim away from the shore. He picked the wrong thing to swim away from the shore with. But Lazarus, the name Lazarus means God has helped. God has helped me. So whilst on earth, 
Lazarus' situation seemed helpless, seemed like hope was beyond his grasp. All of a sudden, in heaven, he now has everything that he needs. He is known, he is named, he is loved. At All In Day, just a few weeks ago, Jake and Mitchell did a, did a quiz and they said, Pastor Josh's only sin is eating stuff from the church fridge. It's kind of true, but kind of not true. Here's why it's not true. Obviously, I sin a lot more than just eating stuff out of the fridge. But I want to defend myself about eating stuff out of the fridge. Because today is Pastor Mark's birthday. And the other day, I borrowed his hollandaise sauce that he special one that he went out and he bought especially you know to eat and i borrowed it took it home consumed it and i would have gotten away with it if michaela didn't spill the beans but in my defense here's the thing Everybody knows the rule of communal fridges and especially the church fridge. If your name isn't on it, it's up for grabs. If we can all stand. Here's the thing. Is his name on you? Is his name on you? Because if it's not then your life is up for grabs. And, and the enemy wants to grab it. And society wants to grab it. So what has grabbed you? What has you in its grasp? Has the promise of praise possessed you? Has the lasso of lust lynched you? Has the allure of money grabbed you? What has grasped hold of you? Or right now, do you want to take a stand and just like Lazarus, do you want to say, God has helped me? Do you want to say to God, thy will be done because I've tried to help myself and I know where it's going to end up. And so I need you and God, I need your name upon me. I need to be named. I don't want my life to just be up for grabs. I want to make every decision based on the weight of eternity. And I want to know that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I want to know that there is a place for me. And if I'm going to make that decision, I need to know that I need an assurance. Well, friend, your assurance is right here. He wants to write His name upon you. His name of love, his name of forgiveness, his name of acceptance. So we're going to pray a prayer. And I don't care if you've been coming here for years. I don't care if it's your first time. If right now you are saying out of love, out of dependence, out of the weight of 
eternity. If you want to leave this place making sure that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that you are named, then now is your time. So let's pray together, church. Father, we thank you. We thank you for eternity. We thank you for what awaits us. We thank you that it is not just something out there that we can never grasp, that we can never know for sure in our heart of hearts. Because right now, your love is grasping us. Your love is holding us. Your love is naming us. God has helped me. God has saved me. God has loved me. God has accepted me. That this is who I am. So right now, with no one looking around, and I know that I've gone over time, but this is so important because eternity is so important. And so if that's you right now, if you want to say, I, I need God to name me. I need Him to, to stamp His acceptance upon me. I, I need to know that I am named. I need to know that I have a place in heaven. If that's you, then slip up your hand right now without anyone looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to invite you out the front. But if that's you right now, just slip your hand up and we're just going to pray for you. Yes, 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 yes. There's still time. I'm going to pray. If you want to put your hand up while I'm praying, then, then feel free because now is the time. Father, we thank you that you have named us. Father, we thank you for these people that have placed their hands up, that have said, yes, God has helped me. Yes, I need you, God. I, I need you in my life. I need that assurance of heaven. Not based on my performance, not based on what I've done, but based on your forgiveness, based on your love, based on your forgiveness and your grace and your mercy. So, Father, come now. Flood us. Fill us with your grace. Come and stamp that name upon us, the precious name, the only name by which we can be saved, the name of Jesus, the name that is above every other name, is stamped upon you right now. Thank you for joining us this week. If you wish to connect with us, please send an email to info at life.house or come and see us at 170 Adelaide Road, Murray Bridge. And remember, the door is always open for you at Lifehouse. God's house, our home.